Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, and we are going to be talking about a really important question today. What does it mean to be human, and how does that affect how we live out our faith in the culture that we're in? And I have a special guest today, Daniel Darling. He is the Vice President for Communications of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Commission. He's also a pastor of teaching and discipleship at Green Hill Church in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. He writes regularly in a range of publications, including the Washington Post and Huffington Post, and he hosts the weekly podcast, The Way Home. He's also the author of the book that we're going to be talking about today, The Dignity Revolution, Reclaiming God's Rich Vision for Humanity. Well, Daniel, it is great to have you as a part of the podcast today. Man, it's great to be here to talk with your listeners. Great to be here with uh, Impact 360. Wonderful. Well, first, I mean, I share a little of your bio, but talk a little bit about kind of what you get to do and kind of, kind of your role and your kind of passions, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the specifics around your book. Yeah, so I'm vice president of communications for an organization that, that you described. It's, it's the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And uh, we're a unique organization that we are tasked by the churches of the SPC to to do two things, really. One, to represent Southern Baptists and really conservative evangelicals uh, in the public square on a range of issues from uh, the sanctity of human life to religious liberty to human dignity issues, religious freedom and persecution overseas. So we're actively engaged in Washington, D.C. with our office there, in the courts, in the executive branch, in think tanks, the media, and all those things. But then the second part of our mission is to equip the church. We host conferences. We have quite a bit of content, podcasts, and really put a lot of effort into equipping pastors and church leaders how to think through moral and ethical issues, how to apply the gospel of the kingdom to the culture in which we live. And so I also do just do a fair amount of writing for places like Christianity Today and Gospel Coalition. And I also pastor, I'm an associate pastor at a church here in Nashville. I'm a husband. My wife and I have been married for 16 years and we have four beautiful children. So as you can imagine, it's a pretty busy life. Yeah, you got lots going there. So that's, that's awesome. So why a book on human dignity and kind of why now? So what was kind of the, the big overarching motivating factor for you? You know, there's there's really two reasons. I mean, first, I've always been fascinated by the way that the Bible describes humans, the vision that the Bible has for humans. I mean, right from the opening pages of Genesis, you see Moses when he's narrating the creation story. He says that for all of the natural world, for all of creation, he spoke it into existence. But he slows down the story to describe how God crafts humans, that there's special care with the way that God has created humans. He uses language that God uses his hands to reach into the dust of the ground and sculpt humans uh, and breathe into them the breath of life. And most importantly, every human being bears the image of God. In other words, there's something like God in every human. There's a reflection of God. And so I've always been fascinated by that vision for humanity, so rich and unique to the Christian story. But another thing that's motivated me is just sort of being involved in politics and public policy for a long time, wrestling between, I feel like, 
you know, conservatives and liberals get it right and get it wrong sometimes when it comes to standing for the vulnerable or thinking about human dignity. So, for instance, I really got into politics because I'm pro-life because when I think about humans being created in the image of God, I think about the most vulnerable humans among us, the, the unborn. And uh, pro-life people say, hey, wait a minute, there's a person here. It's not just a clump of tissues or cells. But that I've also wrestled with what does it look like to apply this to, to other issues? So the way I talk about immigrants, refugees, for instance, do I care that those people at the border were created in the image of God or people being separated from their families? Or the way that we treat the elderly, the way that we think about poverty, do we care about these people created in the image of God? And also the way we think about ourselves, that we are not autonomous beings, that we are created by a creator. I think understanding the Imago Dei means it changes the way we think about our sexuality, the way we think about our interaction with technology, about how we work. It just really has an impact on everything we do. So I wanted to put a book together to really help walk Christians through what does it mean to be an image bearer, uh, both for the way we think about ourselves, but the way we think about the world. That's great. Uh, I love that explanation. And in chapter two of your book, you uh, you quote Francis Schaeffer as saying, if, a, if man is not made in the image of God, then nothing stands in the way of inhumanity. And you have a chapter on this about how we're losing our humanity. Talk about that a little bit. What's happening right now? I mean, what are some of the kinds of ways that you see that we're kind of losing our humanity? You know, that quote by Schaefer's just exactly right. And, and you see that throughout history, that anytime a society has a group of people that they consider less than human, uh, you can justify any harm done to those people. I think about a quote that John McCain has in his book when he talks about being tortured uh, in Vietnam. And he says something similar to what Schaefer says, that you see when people have lost their sense of humanity or their idea of, of human dignity, that they'll be willing to do anything. And we've seen that. You know, ever since the Garden of Eden, we've seen humans create new and innovative ways to to hurt other image bearers. You think about in the 1940s, Germany, where Jewish people were slowly, over about a decade or decade and a half, were slowly dehumanized. You know, first they were blamed scapegoat for economic problems and national decline, and then there were sort of there were sort of laws past that sort of marginalized them. Then they were put in ghettos. They were ghettoized. And then they were, you know, sent off to be killed. And it happened slowly over time. If you look at the art and the pop culture of the time, it started depicting them as less than human, as animals. And nobody wakes up one day and says, let's exterminate a whole group of people. It happens over time. Uh, you think about the way that this transatlantic slave trade happened, you know, like places like Britain and America, where we really viewed Africans as less than human. And so anytime a society does that, and so when you look around today, you say, well, where are the areas where we're doing that? And I think there's a, there's a lot of places. I think the way that, again, that we talk about the unborn and sort of a, we talk about abortion in sort of a clinical way, that it's an easy way to take care of a problem, uh, that these are fetuses or clumps of cells. Once you f uh, refuse to see the humanity of vulnerable people, then you'll do anything to them. Or, or the way that sometimes, even though immigration is a very complicated issue, the way that we'll talk about immigrants as invaders or a burden on society or the way that we'll talk about the elderly uh, with, you know, the sort of death with dignity movement, that these are a burden on society, uh, that they're draining their families and they need to be eliminated. And so I think we just have to look around and say, where are the areas where today we're, we're dehumanizing people? Yeah, I think those are great insights. And it's a good backstory because 
one of the places where I think the Christian worldview especially shines and you really kind of really draw out the implications of this in your book, The Dignity Revolution, is is the idea that Christianity uniquely grounds human dignity in ways that I think other worldviews fail to do. Say a little bit about that and why that's such a good fit for Christianity, but probably in a way kind of an unnatural fit, even though people want human dignity to try to ground that with other ways of thinking, other worldviews. That's exactly right. And I, I spend a pretty good chapter on that. You know, m- my contention is that any views of human dignity of, you know, I think in, innately in all of us, there's a sense that humans matter, but any, any views of human dignity, I think borrow from the Christian story. I mean, you, you'll see ideas of human dignity, other philosophies, you know, other religions, but not the full robust vision you see in the Bible. And in fact, there's, there's a story about that, you know, right after World War II, when the United Nations was formed and uh, they gathered all the world's leading ethicists and philosophers to craft the UN Declaration on Human Rights, which is a great document. Uh, the UN has kind of a shaky record of enforcing it, but it's a great document that has been used as a basis for, you know, war crimes tribunals, and for helping new uh, countries form their governments and the concept of human rights. But there's an interesting story about that, that when they came together, everybody understood that the document was needed and that this language for human dignity was needed, but they couldn't understand on a moral basis for it. And, and my contention is if you don't have Christianity, then you don't have a moral basis for human dignity. Human dignity is one of the best gifts that Christianity really gives to the world. And so even when Christians at times dehumanize people, as, as we've seen throughout history where the church at times has been on the wrong side of issues like civil rights, it's because they've gotten away from the center of the Christian story, not because they've applied it more fully. When, when Christians apply more fully the concept of human dignity, that's where you see some of the best things that the church has done coming alongside the vulnerable in ways that are really remarkable. Yeah, I think that's a really important insight. You know, as you think about this, obviously there's lots of issues you talk about in your uh, book, Contending for Dignity, so we'll, we'll hit some of these. But there's obviously lots of conversation around a lot of these areas right now in our culture. But one of them that's kind of in the forefront, especially for Christians, is figuring out how this view of human dignity and the gospel and justice and all of these things relate. Maybe I know you've done a good amount of thinking on this. Talk about that in terms of how those concepts relate of human dignity, the gospel, and justice, and doing good, and all those kinds of things. How, does, how do those themes relate to one another? You know, it's one of the things I really want to do with this book is, is tie those things together. And I think the only way to do that and the only way to see that is to see it through the lens of the kingdom of God. And so I use that quite a bit. And if you look at Jesus' ministry, you know, you know there's this debate right now between do we prioritize gospel proclamation or do we prioritize social justice? And when I look at the scripture, I don't, I don't see the scripture making that division like we do. Uh, if you look at Jesus' ministry, he's saying two things. He's saying both repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, individual repentance by faith in Christ. He's saying that even to Nicodemus, who's a really devout person, that even you need to repent to be born again, to be in the kingdom of God. And he's also demonstrating what the kingdom looks like in his own ministry. He's, you know, when John the Baptist's disciples come to him and say, you know, are, are we sure we got the right guy? Are you the Messiah? And he said, look what's happening. Are, are the lame walking? Are the blind seeing? In other words, he was fulfilling Isaiah's vision that the kingdom of God is indeed good news for the poor. So if the church is to be an outpost of the kingdom of God, 
right? If the kingdom of God is here, but we're also waiting for it to come in its fullness. If we're to be an outpost of the kingdom of God, then we not only proclaim the gospel of what it takes to be in the kingdom, but we, we demonstrate what the kingdom looks like, what our king looks like. Why would anyone want to be part of a kingdom, you know, for not living out what, what the king says he's like? It's a kingdom of dignity and respect. And so I think we come alongside the vulnerable and stand up for the vulnerable. We, we show a glimpse of what the kingdom will look like. And I think it relates to human dignity in, in the sense that, you know, God created us in his image to reflect his glory to fill the earth with his glory. When sin entered the world, it dehumanized us. And when Eve says yes to the serpent, the lie was that she would be her own God, but actually it made her less than human. She's taking orders from a serpent. She's supposed to have rule over the animal kingdom. So it dehumanizes. And the corruption of sin you see all around us, this is why we have brother against brother. We have bloodshed and, and all these assaults on dignity. But in Christ, God in Christ has come to restore our, our image-bearing purposes. So what the first Adam could not do in fulfilling his humanity, the second Adam did in Christ. And so he he restores us to our image-bearing purposes. He, he restores uh, our humanity. And we as his people uh, are showing the world what that new restored kingdom looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really helpful and some really good ways of thinking about that. One of the things that I'd love to talk to you about a little bit is what are some areas that you think Christians are getting right in the area of human dignity and bringing those themes together? And then in a second, we'll talk about maybe some blind spots we have. But let's start with what are maybe a couple areas that you see, wow, you know, Christians are really living this out well and bringing this to bear in a very public way and really embodying human dignity and people made in the image of God? That's a great question. And to be honest with you, there's so many areas where Christians are doing this well. I mean, a couple of things that, that come to mind for me, again, I think the pro-life movement has introduced into the culture this moral vocabulary that that humanity, even at its most vulnerable and least contributing to society, is worth dignity and respect and protection. And so I think the pro-life movement standing unpopularly alongside the unborn say, hey, wait a minute, there's a human being here. I also think about, and I do some work with organizations like World Vision and other humanitarian organizations, and I'm, I'm amazed that if you go around the world, you can go to the most war-torn places in the world, places that are devastated by famine, by civil war, by violence, that are just really in a bad place. You will often, if not always, find God's people there coming alongside the most vulnerable and saying, these are people the world may have forgotten, but God has not forgotten. I mean, I think of doctors who who spend their lives over in developing countries, developing vaccines, life-saving vaccines. They're not doing it for money. They're not doing it for prestige. They're not doing it for fame. They're doing it because they they feel this is the mission of God and they feel that these people matter to God. And so there's all sorts of ways. I mean, some of the most generous people are followers of Christ, adopting children and orphans, and all sorts of ways. And so I think in many ways, the church, even though it's imperfect, is doing that in, in, in some really great ways. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's really important to highlight those things because I think one, it encourages people. Mm -hmm. And two, I think it draws attention because sometimes, I think sometimes Christians can feel discouraged, yeah. you know, about all the hard that's going on and all the yeah. confusion and just the bad that's going on, but it's really important to also remind people that there are a lot of faithful Christians who are loving people well, who are loving their neighbor, 
who are sharing the gospel, who are serving people. And that's really, really important, which is why I wanted to start there. But I also know that there's ways that we can always get better, right? There's blind spots we have. And if we always knew what they were, they wouldn't be blind spots, right? So what are what are maybe at this moment, are there maybe one or two, because I know you write about lots of different topics in your book, but is there a blind spot or two that you think, hey, as Christians, we haven't always done great here. Maybe there's an opportunity for us to do this better. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so interesting too, because even as we talk about blind spots, you know, a lot of secular people only want to see the blind spots of the church and act like, you know, if we just got rid of Christianity, the world would be better. Actually, if you got rid of Christianity, the world would be much worse. You wouldn't have this. Yeah, it would be, that would not be a win for everyone. Yeah. I mean, and in fact, even people who are secular say without Christianity, there's no civilization, has no concept of human dignity. And even in the areas where we can be criticized, it's that we have not lived out the faith we proclaim enough. So we, we need to return to the faith we proclaim. But I do think some of the ways, particularly in America, that Christians sometimes feel like they have to choose between, say, being pro-life and pro-justice, that that sometimes the way we pit one group of vulnerable people against the other. So sometimes whenever there's a, a mass shooting, some of my well-meaning pro-life friends will say, well, why are we so concerned about these 15 kids when, you know, 50,000 or, or whatever babies are aborted every year, as if we got to pick one or the other. And I'm saying we should warn both. On the flip side, I'll hear people who, who rightly care about things like racial justice. And they'll say, well, you know, why are we so concerned about all these unborn babies? Let's just care about these people. And it's like, we don't have to choose between the two. So that's one area, I think, where we we feel like you have to be either or. And I think as a Christian who believes in, in this concept of the image of God, that we, we should be for fighting for all vulnerable people. Secondly, I think sometimes, particularly white evangelicals, I think sometimes we're a little bit of blind spots on race. Sometimes it's hard for us to listen to our black and brown brothers and sisters when they're saying, here's my experiences growing up as a minority in this country. Here's some of the ways that it feels like the system is lined up against me. I think sometimes it's tendency to just kind of be tribal and say, well, you know, they're wrong. This is what I'm hearing from news channels in my tribe. I'm just sort of going to ignore that. And I, I really think it's incumbent on us for to listen and learn and look at our minority brothers and sisters in their full humanity. And say, you know, to listen to somebody is to acknowledge their full humanity. And so I think those are some and, – and I think lastly, the, the rhetoric. You know, I think some of our political rhetoric where we'll be so devoted in one area to standing up for vulnerable people groups and their dignity, but then we'll talk in undignified ways about other groups. So sometimes pro-lifers, sometimes the way I hear them talk about immigrants is, is really – denying them their dignity, even even if you disagree on the mechanics of immigration reform or policy. Or sometimes the way I'll hear some progressive evangelicals who rightly are standing up for racial justice or for the poor will really ignore or even mock people like pro-life groups who stand up for the unborn. And I think a lot of that's just because of tribalism, that a lot of times we are catechized, we are formed more by our tribes, by our political parties, by our affiliations more than we are by scripture. And and really, you know, first Peter says that we're strangers and foreigners. And if we're strangers and foreigners, we represent another king in another kingdom. That means even though we have to join institutions, we have to make voting decisions, we should never feel fully at home in any earthly movement. There should always be a, a kind of dissonance there. And if we do, it could be that we're putting, we're letting our 
politics shape our faith instead of our faith shaping our politics. I think that's really, really helpful and well said. And so we always have opportunities, you know, empowered by, you know, the grace of God and the Holy Spirit to move into this and do better. So, you know, you write about different areas um, that we can talk about this. You mentioned, you mentioned race. What, what's one way that we can do better? What's a practical way to kind of move that forward? Because you, you talked about, are there ways the system is stacked against our, our brothers and sisters, you know? And so what could it look like for us to do that better kind of specifically? I think there's a few things we can do. I think number one, listening to what our black and brown brothers are saying. And sometimes that listening by sitting down with friends and having conversations, but sometimes it's it's reading and studying and kind of getting up to speed on, on some of these issues. One of the most helpful books I read probably a couple of years ago was one called The Warmth of Other Sons. It talked about the Great Migration, you know, in the mid 20th century. But just listening and learning, getting up to speed on some of the issues that are going on. I think number two is pausing. You know, whenever there's a racial racial tension in the country, not just immediately defensively posting on social media our opinion from our tribe, but really listening and learning. And third, I think, you know, as much as these are big national issues, and I think they are, I think the best work is happening locally on the ground, you know, getting together with people that don't look like us and saying, what would it look like for us to worship together? What would it look like for us to just sort of spend time and learn from each other? Uh, one of my favorite senators, uh, Senator James Langford, him and Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina have spearheaded this idea of, of Sunday conversations where, hey, just a white family and a minority family, just get together and have dinner together and learn from each other. It's amazing what can happen when we are intentionally getting around people that, that are not like us. I think if we prioritize racial, we, we should prioritize racial reconciliation, not because it's just an it would be a neat thing. But if you look at Revelation 5 and 7, what, what God says about the kingdom of God. So there's people from every nation, tribe, and tongue around the throne of God. If this is what the kingdom looks like, shouldn't our churches begin to slowly look more like that? So I think, you know, it's hard work. It's difficult work. But wherever we are in our sphere of influence, what can we, what, you know, what's the most important next step is what I would say. And, th- and that's what we should do. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really helpful. That's really good advice. And obviously, you talk about lots of different things in your book here. And one of the topics is obviously around, you know, say immigration. One tension that Christians often feels like, okay, I'm in America. I'm an American. How do we balance this tension between the rule of law as well as loving our neighbor well? What are maybe some principles or ways of looking at that that help us do better in that area in a more dignified, human dignity sort of way? Yeah, you know, immigration is a complicated issue. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, if we believe in Romans 13 that, you know, God gives nations the authority to, you know, to establish their borders, to have laws. I mean, we, we do believe in the rule of law. You know, the United States is a beacon of freedom, but we can't have, you know, everybody can't live here just resource wise and all that. On the other hand, you know, I think being the most wealthy nation in the history of the world, the wealthiest and freest nation. And arguably the most Christian influence, if you want to say that, I think we have an obligation to be somewhat open-handed, to say if there are people in need that are coming here, our attitude should not be, you know, oh gosh, these people are moving into my neighborhood and the neighborhood's changing because it doesn't look like me. But God has bringing these nations to our doorstep. And so, you know, good people are going to disagree on the exact number of people who should come in, how policies should be set. 
But we should be open-handed as a country. I think God will judge us for our lack of open-handedness. But even the way we talk about immigrants, even the way that we look at immigrants, there's a way that I think sometimes our rhetoric as conservatives is, is deeply dehumanizing, looking at immigrants as a burden, as a, an obstacle to the flourishing of other people groups. And honestly, the economic data doesn't even bear that out. The economic data says that the more you know, the, the immigration actually helps us economically, they're a net economic benefit. But even if they weren't, I mean, this idea that that one group of people is the obstacle to another group of people's flourishing. It's very Darwinian. It's not biblical. And so I think we should be open-handed. The way we talk about other other people's – all of us at, at some point were immigrants. All of us came over here. You know, Unless you're a Native American, all of us are immigrant families. And so we need to understand and recognize that the Bible has a lot of language about coming alongside the foreigner, the stranger in your midst that I think applies to today. I think when Jesus tells the story of – the Good Samaritan, he's saying, in effect, when he says to love your neighbor as yourself, that your neighbor is the person that you're least likely to want to love, the person that seems like the most burden to you. And I think that applies to the issue of immigration uh, and refugees. And when you think about the refugee crisis, you know, we're in a time period with the greatest displacement of human beings in recorded history with this refugee crisis. People estimate like 60 million people on the move. Most of these people are in desperate situations that wish they were in their homelands, but their homelands are torn up. The ones that come into the United States are probably the most desperate, and it's a very small percentage of the worldwide population of refugees. And I'm just sad that you know we had our lowest intake of refugees since 1980. Many of these people are fleeing Christian persecution. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so to think that Christians in the United States are saying, you know, be warmed and filled, but we don't want you to come over here. I think God's going to judge us for that. Yeah, and that's those are really important insights to have because we have to be able to figure out how to navigate. That's one of the tensions, and we need to figure out how we can grow in that area. Obviously, there's so much great stuff in your book, The Dignity Revolution, but one thing I wanted to ask you about as we kind of wrap up in a second is this idea of kind of agreeing to disagree and kind of a little bit of your comments on kind of how pluralism in the state and religious liberty, how, how should those function together? Maybe a vision kind of going forward. Yeah, I think there's a kind of a misunderstanding about religious liberty. You know, I hear Christians on all sides say, yeah, it doesn't really matter. The church will flourish without religious liberty. That's true. I mean, you look at the church in China, it's just flourishing, even though the country is cracking down on Christianity. But that doesn't mean we should root for persecution. And uh, I look at when Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.2, when he says, pray for kings and all those in authority, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life. And he goes on to say that, you know, the spread of the gospel is a good thing. And what he's doing is he's tying religious liberty into mission. He's saying, let's pray that we have space to live out the gospel. Now, Paul and Timothy did not have the opportunity to shape their governments, but we do. You know, we're a nation of the people, by the people, and for the people, which means we share responsibility for what our society looks like. And uh, religious liberty, I think, is rooted in human dignity. When, when Jesus says – to the religious leaders when they ask about paying the tax. He says, render to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what is God's. Uh, and he asks them, whose image is the coin? Uh, the coin. What he's saying is this. There are certain things as a citizen of a country that you owe the leadership uh, because God has appointed those leaders, you know, pay your taxes, you know. But there's certain things that governments cannot take from people. There's certain things that are not the property of the government. And, and I think Jesus is saying your conscience 
is not Caesar's. It's God's. God has shaped your conscience. No government should trample on the conscience of individuals. And so religious liberty recognizes the dignity of every person as, as an image bearer uh, with the ability to think and reason and choose to believe. Coerced religion tramples on people's human dignity. And so even when Christians, sometimes Christians are tempted to do this, to say, well, we don't want this religious group building their house of worship in our community. But if we partner with the government to stop another religion from from building a house of worship, that same law can be used against us. And if we believe the gospel is true and it triumphs in the marketplace of ideas, then we shouldn't fear other other religions. In fact, you know, wanting the government to favor Christianity really is saying that we're not confident in the power of the gospel. We need the government to put their foot on the scale and help us. And that's just not what Jesus is saying when he says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. We don't fight with the, the world's weapons. So, yeah, that's really helpful because religious liberty is good for everyone and we want to we want to have it for everyone and it flows from that. And so as you've been listening to this conversation, maybe at home, maybe you're running around um, the neighborhood or driving and commuting to work, I hope what you're hearing is the importance of how our worldview shapes how we live and connecting those dots in this conversation uh, with Daniel Darling in his great book, The Dignity Revolution. And it's also one of the things that we love doing with high school and college students here at Impact 360. We love helping them get a vision for the Christian life that's bigger for just Sunday morning, only Christianity, and bigger than that in a way that integrates and sees the gospel as good news, but then going out and doing good as well flows from that. So we would love to continue to be an ally for you. If you have a high schooler, we have Impact 360 Propel and Immersion during the summer. We also have a nine-month gap year, Impact 360 Fellows. You can check those things out at Impact 360 org to have a new generation, Gen Z, really grow up having this vision, seeing things differently, not having some of those blind spots that maybe we've talked about already. So as you think about this week, think about how you can dignify someone and treat them more as fully human this week. That'd be a great application of our podcast interview today. But Daniel, I just want to thank you for writing the book, The Dignity Revolution. There's going to be links in the show notes about this. And I just really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing through Impact 360 and raising up leaders for the next generation. It's so important for this generation to see themselves as as key and getting involved in key institutions of public life and doing, doing leadership. So I'm really appreciative of the work that you're doing. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.